thank you, choir, for songs to focus our minds and our attention on the person of honor on this morning, right? So we are grateful to God to be in his presence this morning in his house and as I always say, and I know you guys think it's probably cliche, this is not even in my notes, this is from my heart. I always consider it a great honor to uh, preach the word of God to the people of God and to stand in the stead of Pastor Carson as he is uh, not with us this morning. And I do not take it lightly. And, uh, and I'm excited uh, about the word that... Uh, I'm always excited about the word. Let me, let me stop pretending. Y'all yeah, probably thinking, well, child, you, you get excited over Jesus' wept. I don't say. But I'm excited about uh, even more so the word this morning. And so before we get into it, just a, a couple of housekeeping things. I, I always want to acknowledge my wife who allows me and supports me to pull away and to pour myself into what God has called me to do. My daughters, uh, Jayla and Hannah, who... Man, I just cannot believe how grown they are and, uh, and how much food of mine they eat. <laughs> it's all in love. But even though this morning is, is a much of a blessing and appreciation I have for my immediate family, my wife and my daughters, I also have my parents here with me as well. And a special, special blessing, my uh, mother's sister, my Aunt Eva. Uh, all the way from Memphis is here worshiping with us. And so it is, it is a, an honor. I used to just, just from a context standpoint, I mean, as a little, little, little boy, I used to want to go over to Aunt Eva's house and stay with Aunt Eva. She let me eat some of everything. She, she'd buy anything I wanted and have cereal and fudge rounds and all kinds of goodies in the, in the closet. And it was just always a good time. And then the Lord blessed us to move back to Memphis with my family, and I picked up where I left off. I was going back over to Aniva's house, still eating everything I wanted, and she'd have it in the house. And so, praise God for aunts and, and for just the blessing of family. And so, we again, we are glad to be in the house this morning. If you have your uh, programs, you can find uh, the scripture for this morning in there. And if you would, please stand. So we can read together, we'll read the scripture, have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right on into what thus saith the Lord. Uh, you know what, let me make sure I'm leading you in the wrong. <clears throat> the text for this morning comes from Colossians, the first chapter, verse 15 through 20. And there you will find these words, let's read along together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Yeah, let's keep standing. Let's pray right quick. Dear Heavenly Father, we come now excited hmm. to hear from you. Not excited to hear from me, not to hear what I've got to say, but excited to hear from you, God. Your word is rich. It is powerful. It is contemporary. It is, it is applicable. It is practical. God, it is living and breathing. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts to the core of who we are, but then it can heal and soothe. <laughs> and so, God, we are excited now for this time that you saw from the beginning of everything, a divine appointment with you, your Holy Spirit, and your word. God, we ask that you would open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your word, that you would open our hearts, that we would receive what you are telling us needs to be different, needs to be better, needs to be less, needs to be more, needs to be whatever, God. That we would open our ears and listen attentively. God, we pray that you would do through your word what only you can do. And that is make sure that it does not return to you void. Make sure that it accomplishes everything that you sent it forth to accomplish, God. We trust and believe that regardless of what our eyes may see, you are at work on the inside. God, as I've said many times before, I do not need your help to preach this. I need you to preach this. So God, do not let me say anything that is not consistent with your word. Do not let me interject my own thoughts and opinions into this, but let it be straight from you, straight from the text, straight from your spirit as you communicate to us the truth of who you are through your word. And God, let us, when all is said and done, when we leave from here, I pray, God, that we would be followed by your word, that it would pursue us as we go through the week, that it would not relent, would not let up, that it would continue to chase us through this week until we deal with whatever needs to be dealt with, until we bring into alignment whatever needs to be brought into alignment, until we bring under submission to your lordship whatever needs to be brought under submission. All these things we ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. <laughs> I'm laughing because, you know, as, as you're praying, you can hear people commented, hey man, thank you. When I said that last part, you got quiet. Nobody wants the word to chase them through the week. <laughs> I said, whoa, wait a minute. Don't relent. Don't let up. <laughs> Can I get my blessing and go? No, this, this is good. This is good. So this morning, um, we're going to spend some time in Colossians. We just read the verses there. And the aim for this morning is that we would gain a clear picture of the supremacy of Christ, and that this understanding would then translate into Christ being preeminent in our lives. Amen? 
Just by way of introduction, I, I want to talk a little bit. And this is kind of funny, and, and, and my brother's here, and anybody who sits on the front row can attest to this. When you're on the front row, you, you have a really good view to things that are happening in the front. Uh, and especially, uh, God bless them, when our children are performing. I, I mean, it, it's just... It's wonderful to see them up here. It's wonderful to see them uh, engage. The, those who work with them, God bless you, your patience and your kindness to, 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 to rehearse and, and to go over and to get them to, to do the things that you've uh, been practicing all week. But up here, we, we, we not only get to see kind of the whole, but you can also see some individual um, things that are happening. So, so if, 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 if we would, uh, go ahead and bring up the first uh, image here so that uh, you can see. This is our Christmas play that we just had back in uh, December, and it was, it was beautiful, right? The kids came in, these outfits. I was like, man, look at this. We've got some talented folks in the body. Uh, they're all up here focused on, on the, the manger scene, the nativity. Jesus is there in the center. There's angels. There's cattle lowing. There's shepherds all around. The choir is up there in the red singing. But then my attention was brought to one individual. Hmm. <laughs> Now, just, just for clarity, I, I got this cleared with the parents. That since, since SJ is a minor, uh, they said, yes, you can do this. I told them what I wanted to do and, and that I could use this picture. But, but, but I couldn't help. And, and these pictures, I, I, these are pictures I took, right? You people saw me take a picture like, Charles doesn't have kids up there. But I had to capture <laughs> SJ here. And, and, and I, I, I was looking at this, and so I sent it to the Grady's. And if you would, put the next slide up here. I sent it with this caption. Uh, the moment you realize it's Jesus' birthday and not yours. <laughs> ah. I don't know if maybe through the practice, if, if, if it didn't, didn't register with SJ that all the songs had Jesus' name in it, but something, something was different when he got out here. All right? But everybody else, if you notice in that first picture, it was focused kind of on the baby Jesus. But my man SJ is, is, is looking out this way, right? Leave that there just for a minute because I do want to talk just a few things about this. Because sometimes, right, when we have uh, unmet expectations, when we have unfulfilled desires, when we have some uncertainty... <laughs> Spiritually, we can look like SJ is looking in this picture, kind of turning our back, disgruntled. Yeah, I know Jesus is over there, but he's not doing what I need him to do. Things aren't lining up in my life like I want them to line up. And I, I get it. The angels are lowing and the shepherds all around him, but Jesus ain't getting my praise right now. Because things aren't exactly like I want them to be. And while the focus should be on Jesus, we're looking elsewhere. Hmm. Because we feel like uh, we're not getting everything we need from Jesus. Somebody sold us this bill about how when you come to Jesus, then everything is going to be sugar drops and lollipops. But it's been light on the sugar 
and heavy on the drops. <laughs> and, and because we're feeling like we're not getting what we need from Jesus, we begin to now look for other solutions, other means of bringing about our heart's desires. <clears throat> and in the process, we begin to really lose sight of who Christ really is. Because we're looking for something more. We're looking for something more satisfying. We're looking for something deeper. We're looking for something greater than whatever interject or whatever that thing is for you. And like SJ in this picture, we begin to move our gaze from who Christ is and begin to look for anything, anyone that can satisfy you can take that down if you don't mind. Thank you very much. And, and, and I believe this is exactly where the church in Coloss is in the text. See, the church at Coloss, they wanted more. If you do some background study, you'll find out that simply knowing Christ wasn't enough for them. Uh, they also wanted to know the deeper spiritual truths. <laughs> they wanted to go deep. Everybody's talking about it. We want to go deep. The Colossus Church wanted to go deep, and they believed, uh, they believed in Christ, and they believed in the gospel, but they still found themselves looking for more. It's got to be more. How do I engage my third eye? How do I become woke? How do I get into all whatever, whatever we call it nowadays? They said, I got Jesus, and he's all right with me, but I... I I want, I want, there's got to be more truth than what's contained just in the scripture. So I'm in search of universal truth. And as a result, they began to turn and dibbled around in some Jewish philosophy. They dabbled a little bit in some pagan magical practices, and then they kind of mixed it all together. So they had this what's called a syncretism, right, where you kind of take Christianity, but then you mix in what you used to do, you mix in what some other folks do, and then you've got kind of this amalgam that kind of looks like Christianity, but at the same time, it doesn't. Because in their eyes, the gospel of Christ, and by extension, Christ himself, was not enough to meet all their needs. Man. And this led to a Greco-Roman Jewish heresy in the church, which Paul is addressing in this letter to the Colossians. Now, you should really go home and read the book of Colossians, it's a, it's a very short book, just four chapters, and, and you can easily read through it. Uh, and it's just some really rich stuff, uh, some good stuff from Paul talking about who Christ is. But I, I wanted us to zoom in on verses 15 and 20 here in the first chapter and really talk about Christ in three aspects. One is Christ and the first cre creation. Then we want to look at Christ and the new creation. And then we want to look at Christ and reconciliation. So let's move through this, and, and uh, if you're taking notes, uh, please follow along on the outline uh, as we go through this. But the idea is, right, is that we will kind of walk through what Paul is trying to help the Colossians see, 
is true about the Christ that they serve. Well, or maybe I should say better yet, the Christ that they think isn't enough. <laughs> the theme of this section verses 15 through 20, is the preeminence of Christ. Some of your Bibles may even have broken it apart and put that little title in there, the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. And Paul, in the very first verse 15, he does not pull any punches. He, he doesn't ease into it. He doesn't kind of build up to it. He doesn't work up to it. He just hits the Colossians squarely in between the eyes with it when he says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now, to some of my astute Bible scholars, right, this description of Jesus as being the image of God may sound a bit familiar because you may be thinking back to the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis around chapter 1, verse 26, right? And you might be thinking, hey, I've heard about other, someone else being in the image of God. But there is a subtle difference uh, and an important difference and distinction between what Paul is saying here and what we're all thinking about out of Genesis 1.26. See, in Genesis, we read and we understand that Adam, and by extension, all of mankind, are uh, created in the image of God. But there is a difference of being created in the image of God and being the image of God. Mm -hmm. When something is created in the image of something, it carries with the idea that whatever was created is based on the original, but doesn't line up with the original 100%. It's like when you're watching a movie, Pete, and it comes on and, and it, you get the title and all of a sudden it says, it's based on a true story. If you're like me, I turn to Karen and say, it's based on a true story. <laughs> oh, <really>? <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be good. It's based on a true story. But what does that mean? What does that mean? That, that doesn't mean that it is a true story. What it means is, is that at the core, this movie that you're about to watch is based sometimes loosely on true and actual events. But the director has exaggerated and embellished and maybe added a few things, even created some characters in there that weren't even in the story uh, just to move the story along. So that movie was created in the image of a true story, but that movie is not the image of the true story. But, but to be the image is to be the exact representation. It is to be aligned in every single way, in every aspect. No understating, no overstating. Hey, if you've seen one... You've seen the other. That is why in John 14, when Philip says, look here, Jesus, if you would just show us the Father, we would be satisfied. Jesus steps back and says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, y'all, I'm going to get y'all. Y'all going to get there. I've been dealing with this all week, so I'm already there. Hmm. Paul, in this simple statement, is letting the Colossians, and you and I also know, that Jesus stands apart from us. 
ah, I need to say that. And I know, I know we nod and be like, yeah, I understand that. But, but here's the problem. And, and this is, I'm talking about me. There are a lot of things that I nod to that, my, that I don't align with in my life. Yes, Jesus. Mm-hmm. I get it. Oh, yes. I'm going this way. Right? So, so I, I, I want you, to, I want you to, to really internalize and chew on this, that Paul is letting us know with this simple statement that, that Jesus stands apart from us. Hmm. Think about it like this. Paul is saying that Jesus isn't a good man who walked with God. Jesus is God who walked with man. There's a difference, Pete. As far as the east from the west difference. <laughs> Secondly, Paul goes on to say not only is he the image of the invisible God, Paul describes Christ as the firstborn of all creation. Now, for some of us, this might be messing a little bit with our theology. Because, right, uh, 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 when we see that, that, that firstborn of all creation, and, and as a matter of fact, there are some people who grab this verse, who grab this phrase, and they say, see, Jesus isn't God, right? He is a created being. He, he just stands as one among many of things that God has created. Now, this is, is problematic on, on, on two fronts. One from a theological standpoint, and then from an exegetical standpoint. Exegetical just means what the text says, right? So from a theological standpoint, <clears throat> it is problematic because if Jesus is just another created being, if he's just a man, then he is not qualified to be the mediator between a holy and righteous God and fallen sinful men, women, and children. If he is just a man, Elder Martin, then he has his own sins to atone for. And his death on the cross, at best, would cover his sin debt. At best. But would do nothing for yours and mine. <laughs> but if we push this further... If we look at it from an exegetical standpoint, just what the text says, right, we would see that this text specifically and the New Testament in general, it all points to Jesus being God in the form of man and not a created being. I'm just going to pull one for you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul says, who, though he, he's talking about Jesus now, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me, let me just, everyday language, Charles International Version. Paul says, look, Jesus was God. But he was okay with leaving God kind of status so that he could come and be a servant among all men. He, he, he lowered himself. He didn't give up his God position, but he, he, he said, look, I'm going to come. And when I come, I'm not going to come to be worshiped and served, but I'm going to serve mankind. 
He emptied himself. Well, what all did he do? Oh, I know what you're talking about, uh, uh, Minister Wright. He, he, he washed the, 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 the disciples' feet. Yeah, he did that. Oh, he healed uh, the sick and, and raised the dead. Yeah, he sure did that. He fed the 5,000. Man, that's awful. That's awfully good service. But, 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 but Paul lets us know that the act of service that he came to do was emptying himself to the point of dying on the cross. Hmm. So, so if we, if we look at this, right, if we look at what Paul says in Philippians, and then he asserts here that Jesus was the image, the image of God, we must conclude that Paul isn't backtracking now off of what he so strongly stated in Philippians to now just introduce Jesus as a man. But instead, he is trying to communicate something else about Jesus when he says that he is the firstborn of all creation. He's also communicating something that his contemporary listeners would have picked up on. Because if you look in Psalms 89 chapter, verse 27, it says this, And I will make, for, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, God is talking about David in this scripture. This is considered a messianic psalm, right? And we know that David wasn't the firstborn of his father, Jesse, because if you know the story of David, he had older brothers. Hmm. So the position, the title of firstborn is pointing to something else. When Paul uses it here, when it was used in the Old Testament, and I believe that what Paul is doing, he's using this Old Testament language not to communicate a literal or physical condition of Christ, but he is trying to illustrate the relational priority of Christ to everything else that is. In other words, Christ as the firstborn of all creation has supremacy over all creation. Because he is the most supreme being. He is the exalted one. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God. Hmm. Having established Christ's position in relation to all of creation, Paul then goes on, right, to give the rationale for his assertions in verse 15. He asserts, right, that he is the image of the invisible God. He asserts that he is the firstborn of all creation. Paul goes on to say Christ is all of these things, right? If you've interacted with him, you've interacted with God. Uh, he is the exalted one. He has supremacy over all creation. And these things are true because, in verse 16, he says, by him all things were created. Man. Huh. Meaning that Jesus is the agent by which all things were created. Or better yet, in creation, it could be said this way, Jesus played an active role in order to produce a desired effect. Think about that, right? Sometimes when we think about Jesus, we think about the baby in the manger. Oh, look at, he's the baby. Sometimes we think about Jesus, we think about him as a 12-year-old. I must be about my father's business in the temple teaching. Sometimes when we think about Jesus, we think about him walking from town to town, teaching and preaching, healing and performing miracles. Sometimes we think about Jesus, we think about him spread on the cross. But we rarely think about him as creator. Hmm. As having been the one 
according to the scriptures, by whom all things were created. Paul doesn't want to leave anything up to chance when he makes this assertion. And, and in case you and I are trying to figure out what qualifies in the all things, he gives us a list. He says that all things includes everything in heaven and on earth. Just in case you thought, well, I guess you could say that Christ kind of created salvation. No, no, no. Paul says, yeah, think bigger. Think larger. Think high. Since, since Colossians, since you don't think Christ is enough, let me tell you what he has done. He created everything in heaven and on earth. That's just another way of saying that things that are close and present, things that are far that you can't see, as high as the skies go and even beyond that, because we can't, we can't even fathom what's out there, and as much as what's on this earth and the parts that we haven't dealt to and the depths that we haven't been able to go to, Christ created all of it. He pushes it even further. He says, not only everything on heaven and earth, but also things visible and invisible. <laughs> oh. So this is not just physical things. So you might be thinking, oh, okay, you know, I, I can see rocks and trees and grass, but I also, I can't see electrons and protons. So I see Jesus did all of that. Well, yeah, that's true. But it's also talking about those invisible things that Paul talks about in Romans 8 and 38, those powers, those principalities, those spiritual forces of darkness, right? So, so we see that, 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 that Christ created everything visible and invisible, physical and spiritual things. Paul then pushes it even further. He does not want to leave any room for anybody to wiggle out and say, ah, Paul, you didn't cover this area. When he gives this list, he says, look... <clears throat> thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, to help you out a little bit with kind of the syntax and the way the sentence structure is, this list, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, actually are modifiers of the things visible and invisible. So what he's saying is, is he says, look, if there are things that you can see that sit on thrones, that have dominion, that are rulers, that have authority in your life, Christ created those things. Oh, but guess what? There's also some things you can't see that sit on thrones, that have dominion, that are rulers and have authority. Christ also created those. <sighs> Let me help you out. Just a little bit of proof that Christ stands in dominion over things visible and things invisible. Just think back a couple of weeks ago when Pastor was preaching about the dem demoniacs. When, when, when Christ comes, actually, let me go back further. When Christ first says, let's go to the other side, a storm comes up. Christ silences the storm. That's an example of him having dominion over things visible. Hmm. He gets to the other side, steps out of the boat. The demoniacs come running to him. And what do they come doing? They come acknowledging who he is. And, they, and it says that, hey, wait a minute. We know who you are. It's too soon. Don't do to us what we know is ultimately going to happen to us. Instead of sending us there, send us into some peace. That's just an example of him having dominion over things invisible. So we see, right, that Christ has created everything that is heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Now, I know it might be hard for us to reconcile in our minds, why is it? Would Jesus create visible and invisible 
uh, thrones and dominions and authorities and rulers who would work against him and against his followers, against his church. But there is encouragement in the text because that's a good question, right? Because it's not just that all these things were created by him and through him, but keep reading because it says that they were also created for him. This is, there's a lot to, to what, is they, what is Paul saying, Pete, about this Christ? Hmm. And what he's saying is, he says, these things serve a purpose. <laughs> a purpose that as we move from day to day isn't always clear. I, 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 I can't always, you know, when I sit down and I try to wrap my mind around it, uh, everything I see going on in the world, everything I see happening in this nation, in our communities, in my home, even in my own body, I, I can't always quite make sense of it. But I can help you out. The text can help us out because we weren't meant to make sense of it all. Because Paul says these things weren't created for you. They were created for him. But still, what is it that helps me in that text, Charles? Well, it's because if they were created for him, it means that only Christ knows how it all fits together. Ah, And only he knows what end is being served. Don't get me wrong, right? There are times when he pulls back the curtain of eternity and he may let us get a glimpse of how these circumstances, how these seasons, how these situations worked in our favor. But it's just a glimpse at best and typically is self-centered. Because when we're asking why, that's what we're really asking. Why is this happening? Not why is this happening. Why is this happening to me? Why is stuff so hard for me? Yeah. I don't deserve this. So every now and then he'll, he'll pull back the curtains and let us kind of see why it happened to me. Why it's so hard for me. But Christ is the only one who knows and is able, that's what we just got through singing, right? To cause all of these things to work to his glory and for our good. Now, you may be thinking, Charles, you said there was help in the text. That didn't feel like help. Well, this is going to sound hard. But, but part of the help is us understanding that it's not about us. I know, I know, that's tough. Because, because, because we, we're, we're preaching and teaching in a way to fill buildings, letting people think and believe that it's all about you. That Jesus came so that you could have all the things that a sin-sick, worldly, carnal heart wants anyway. He's just going to bless it and give it to you. But what we find out is, is that everything that is was created by him. It was created through him and it was created for him. I don't know, Morgan, where I fit in that, but all those pronouns don't cover me. And so when I read that, that lets me know that whatever I'm dealing with, whatever I'm facing, it's about him. It's not about me. Now, the beauty of it is that he's made some promises of how he'll be there for me, 
in the midst of those things. But at the end of the day, ah, yo, what does it say? Uh, yea, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him because all things were created by him, through him, and for him. That includes me. <laughs> in verse 17, let's keep this thing moving. Paul summarizes the previous two verses as he makes it clear that Christ existed before all created things. And everything that was created is being held together, sustained by him. Do you get that? No, just think about this. This is, this is the, the Christ that we serve, right? There's this notion sometimes that God kind of, that the creation is like a spinning top, right? That he kind of just started it spinning and then just stands back, and that thing is just spinning and spinning and then wobbling and going and knocking into things and bouncing off of everything. But that's not what Paul says, right? Paul says that everything that was created is being held together, being sustained by him. I thought about this when I was doing this, and, and, and I like these shows. I love kind of science shows about the universe, and, and, and you know, I, even though a lot of the stuff they say, I'm like, hey, you believe that, you don't believe in God, that's crazy. But, but I love seeing it. I love hearing about it. And, and if you're like me, you've seen it and you've heard it where it talks about, look, the, the, the way the earth is on its axis, if it was a little bit greater angle or a little bit less of an angle, We'd either careen into the sun or we'd fly out into the universe. It talks about how the moon is perfectly balanced there so that even as we're going around the sun, it's going around. You see what I'm saying? And it's, and it's keeping this unbelievable balance in place. It talks about all the planets moving in their orbits and how, how, how even as they pass, the gravitational impact that they have on one another keeps them moving in that same orbit, because if they were just off a little bit, they, they careen and crash into each other. Now, those TV shows stand back and say, isn't nature amazing? I stand back and say, look at Jesus holding things together. He's the one who created it by him, through him, and for him, and he's the one who holds it, sustains it. So when we think about, man, I don't know, the Lord hadn't done nothing for me. I get up and say, thank you, God, that the earth, the tilt of the earth ain't off one degree. <laughs> thank you that you're keeping the moon. Hey, <laughs> I can't see it, but I'm glad Uranus is moving. I, I, look, I can't tell my heart to beat, but Jesus is able to. Keep everything held together. And this is, this, this is in, in contrast to not only what the Colossians were doing, but even what's happening now, because nowadays you're hearing more and more talk about the universe. The universe smiled on me today. The universe must have wanted this to happen. The, the universe has a way of working things out. The universe brought us together, Kenny. Right? You, we, were, we were destined to meet to work on this thing. The, the universe, how ridiculous. Is that? I, I think, right? It, 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 
this is where the Colossians likely were, and even where some of us are today. We're, we're looking to the universe. I'm going to get into your business. We're consulting horoscopes. We're talking about what zodiac sign I was born underneath. Like that has some type of impact, some type of power. Oh, you got quiet on me. I'm going to keep preaching. Like that's got some impact over some created things. Like it can give some insight into your purpose. All of these created things are providentially moving somehow in your life. I think that if we were to ask the universe and the horoscopes, what should I do if they could talk? They say, I don't know. I'm a created thing just like you. Why don't you talk to the one that's keeping me in order? You want to know what house is, is Pluto in? Pluto doesn't know what house is in. Jesus is the one who's moving. This brings me to my first takeaway. Christ existed before and is sovereign over everything that was, is, or will be. And as such, he is the only one that mankind should look to for spiritual fulfillment. That's the point. We run into so many other things. I want to get a reading. I want to see what my horoscope is. I want to consult this. I want to consult that. And, and can you imagine Jesus sitting there thinking, I created everything that is. I'm the only one who understands the ultimate end of everything. And you would have the audacity to run to other created things and ask them or consult them for what your purpose is. When I stand here, having created you for me, So we've talked about Christ and the first creation. Paul then transitions into Christ and the new creation. Namely, the invasion, and this is kind of embedded in here, we'll talk about this, of the kingdom of God here on earth by way of the church, right? Letting us know that Christ is the head of the body that is the church. Now, it is important for us to make a distinction to point this out, that this reference to the church is not talking about church in the way that we typically talk about church today. Because almost everybody has gone to, is currently going to, will go to a church, sometimes even regularly, right? But church attendance and even membership isn't what's in view here. This is not about your local body of believers. This isn't about where mama and them grew up. This isn't about the place that has the, the, the family on the fan and you always wonder, who were they on my fan that I'm waving myself with? Huh. But instead, the church that's being talked about here is the church universal. Get this now. And it encompasses all who acknowledge Christ as Lord. So, so something, is, something different is happening here. Even though Paul is writing this letter to a church in Coloss, he's getting them to see that Christ isn't just about your kind of your local body, 
But this Christ who is huge, who is big, who is preeminent, who has sovereignty over everything, is doing what's happening in Colossus all over the world. And he is gathering to himself a body, which is the church, of which he is the head. And it's important to note, right, Christ's position is not removed from the body, so he's not looking at the church at a distance, but he's connected to the body, right? But it has a, a, a dual kind of a relationship. Because he's the head of the body, he's connected organically to the body, but because he is the head, then his relationship is also the directing, controlling part of the body. The only thing that allows the body, the church, to be one and to act in unity is the headship of Christ. Anyone, listen to me now, anyone seeking to find any principle, any power, or any person huh, to unify the church other than Christ is in danger of being carried away from the truth of the gospel. Anytime. We organize around this place, around anything other than Christ, we no longer are the church. Right? Think about the physical body. But this, is, this is my body because my head is attached to my body. It's one. And if there's any other parts, I know that, well, it doesn't seem good, but if there's any other parts that are strewn around, if they're not connected or they're doing their own thing, it's not a part of the whole. So anything that we would attempt to unify around, no matter how good it may sound, if it's other than Christ, we cease to be the body. Paul continues with the word beginning, right? He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And again, he uses this term, firstborn, to describe Jesus. But this time, it's in a different context. Because before, Jesus is being uh, uh, described as the firstborn of all creation. But here, he is being described now as the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. You're thinking, well, who do we serve? This God, right? This clearly points to his resurrection, right? But there are other people recorded in the Bible who have been raised from the dead, Kenny. So, so what is it that Paul is saying here? Well, Paul's use of the word beginning is somewhat of a clue, meaning that Jesus, right, as the beginning, he's the start of something. That Jesus has done something that before him had not been done before, something new, something different. Like we said, Jesus isn't the only person to have been raised from the dead. As a matter of fact, he was doing a lot of that raising himself. But all of the others who were raised from the dead would eventually die again. Jesus is the only one to be resurrected to never die again. And his resurrection initiates or it begins the means by which those who now believe in him may be resurrected to eternal life as well. And so we see that he is the beginning. He is the firstborn of the dead, meaning the resurrected to new life, those who would be never to die again. Paul then goes on and answers the question of why. Why is it that Christ 
is the head of the church? Why is it that there can be no unity in the church without him as the head? Why is the beginning the firstborn of the dead? Why is he the beginning, rather, the firstborn of the dead? Why is it that he is the first of the resurrection? Verse uh, Here, verse 18 tells us, so that in everything he might be preeminent. It's a very simple statement. But it's letting us know that from the very beginning of creation all the way to, to the restoration and the establishment of the new creation, Christ still reigns supreme. There is not a moment where he takes a second seat or a back seat to anything or anyone else. Even as history moves forward, Christ retains his position over everything. And this brings me to my second takeaway, and that is that Christ is to be supreme in all respects and at every point. He is the Lord of creation, the Lord of his church, and must be Lord in the lives of those who belong to him. Hmm. Now let's look at Christ and reconciliation, verses 19 and 20. Here we find a connection to what Paul stated earlier in verse 15, where he says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. And here in verse 19, he says that Christ is the fullness, right? That the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ. And so I want to step through that and let's look at each part of that. The fullness, dwelling, and pleased. Well, first, the fullness of God is all that God is. It's not pieces of him. It's not a portion of him, not fractions of him. Uh, not a watered-down version, not some of his attributes and, and maybe not others, but it is the fullness. In the Greek, the word that's used here carries the idea of complete, totality. Again, it's pointing to the distinction between man who was credited or who was created with certain aspects of God's as, uh, nature and his character, but not the totality of his nature and character, his essence and his being. So it says that all of who God is, the totality, the completeness of God, dwelled in Christ. Hmm. The only other place that we've seen God's presence dwell is in the temple. With this assertion of God's fullness dwelling in Christ, Paul presents Christ as the new temple. Get this, get this. This is, this is, this is good. This is deep. Yeah, you want some deep stuff. Here's some deep stuff, right? <laughs> and those, think about it, right? Because the temple represented where people would go in order to get close to God, right? To have a connection with God, to experience God. Well, Paul says, look, all that God is, is dwelling in Christ. So you no longer need to go to the temple. You don't understand, yeah. Yeah. You don't have to go to the temple anymore. You, you don't have to kind of go through that ritual that you used to have to go through where you, you had to wash a certain way and dress a certain way and sprinkle some things and sacrifice some stuff and make some offerings. And then even then you might still not be able to make it in because then we have to send somebody else into the Holy of Holies. And we didn't know what was going to happen to him. So we tied a rope to him in case he fell dead. We could pull him back out. This is, I'm telling you, right? But Paul says, what you were going to the temple to get now is in Christ. This is why when he died on the cross, it says that the veil was rent. 
the veil that separated, right, the people from coming to God because now it was finished to Telestai on the cross. And the fullness dwelled in Christ now. And then this word, please, it says that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. We all know what it means to be pleased. This is the way I like to say it. Uh-uh, it was a perfect fit. Ah. There, there wasn't, you know, when you put on some pants, Elder Martin, and I'm not saying this happens to you. I'm just saying you've heard it. It's happened to me before. And, you, and it's like, these don't, these, yeah, these ain't fitting like I want them to fit. They're a little snug in some places, a little loose in other places. But what Paul tells us is that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. It fit perfectly. There was no excess. Nothing nothing couldn't get in. Everything got in, but there wasn't a whole lot of extra space. It fit. It was pleased to be there. Just like it was pleased to be in the temple, right? Lastly, Paul lets us know that the fullness of God It didn't dwell in Christ just because. But there was a purpose being served, and that purpose was to reconcile to himself all things on earth or in heaven by the blood of his cross. Paul establishes that Christ, having created everything, now sits over and above all of creation as Lord, but because of sin, not all of creation submits to his lordship. So there has to be some type of restoring. There has to be some type of resetting, some type of action that counters the effect of sin on all of creation. Since Christ is the dwelling place of the fullness of God, Christ then becomes the only one, right, who is qualified. He's the only one who is able to be the agent of that uh, atonement, that setting right things that are not in place. He is the only one who can be that mediator between a holy God and fallen man. If the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, then there can't have been any sin in him. Get that. When you, if you look back in Exodus... Several, several chapters when God gives Moses the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, on how to construct the ark. And God is being very, very specific. When you read it, you're thinking, man, I don't understand. Why does it have to be exactly like this, exactly like that? It can't be this way. It must be this way. Well, what you're seeing is God setting up a pattern, a foreshadow that says, look, for my presence to dwell... It's got to be perfect. It's got to be perfection. Not just perfect, Elder Martin, but it has to be perfectly like I said. So don't come telling me, well, no, this is a box. Yeah, I didn't ask you to make a box. I told you that it needed to be fashioned this way, right? And so we see God laying out in Exodus, here are the requirements for my fullness to dwell somewhere into Christ who now, it tells us, has the fullness of God dwelling in him, which lets us know he was perfect. Exactly how God needed him to be. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And making, right, because he was perfect, it makes his death on the cross a substitutionary death. It's a sacrifice now on behalf of the sins of the world. But, get this now, language is important. Christ's death does so much more 
then just forgive us our sins. Notice that Paul doesn't simply say that Christ reconciled to himself mankind, but he says that he reconciled to himself all things. This lets us know that Christ's death on the cross, not only does it reconcile man to God, but it also reconciles all of creation to God. In a real sense, Christ's death provides the pathway for all of creation to bear the right relationship to the creator that they were intended to have in the beginning. <laughs> this brings me to my third takeaway, and this might hurt some of our feelings, but I think we'll be okay. <clears throat> Christ's work of reconciliation on the cross is less about you and me individually. And it's more about him restoring the right relationship of lordship over all creation, which includes you and me. Let me, let me stay here a little bit. Don't worry. That's my last takeaway. I'm going to do my conclusion, and then y'all can go home and, and watch uh, the Titans beat the Colts. But <clears throat> yeah, this is important. This is important for us to get, and this is what we were talking about, Elder Morgan, earlier this morning. <clears throat> and I love it. Look, the songs, they bring a tear to my eye. They make me, they make me feel so good about myself when it talks about uh, that, that, you know, God saw something in me that was worth saving. He, 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 there, was, there was something about me that made him leave heaven and come and save me. Well, guess what? That does, I get why we like them songs. Because that makes me feel pretty good about myself. Well, there is some truth in there. There was something about you and me that God saw, uh, but it's not some endearing quality about, oh, Pete really tries hard. It was a sin-sick, dead heart that would not respond to him at all. But the problem with that kind of a thinking, right, is it, is it makes it easy for us, and I'm going to go back to SJ, for us to turn our back on Jesus, because I think I brought something to the relationship. And when you're not doing your part, Jesus, guess what? I'm going to withhold from you. But when I think about what Paul is saying here, and I start, to I start to kind of put it all in line. Wait a minute. Jesus existed before everything. He created everything. Everything that was created was created by him, through him, and for him. He sits atop all of creation, old and new creation, and then came to this earth to save me? Or did he come to the earth to reset all of creation? Now, don't get me wrong. They're shouting because I'm a part of that creation, right? So I get to, to glory in that, but it's not about me, Pete. It's about him wanting to restore the thing that he created by him, through him, and for him so that then it sits in submission to his lordship. When I get that twisted, it becomes easy now for me to sit and, 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 and disconnect from church because things ain't going like I want them to go. It becomes easy for me to withhold my tithes and offerings because I don't like the songs that are being sung. I don't like the messages being preached. I don't like the color of the carpet. So they're not going to get my money. It becomes easy for me to just come and leave and not engage with the body because I think it's about me. But Paul tells us Christ is the all in all. 
Christ is the preeminent one. Christ has supremacy over whatever. Fill in the blank. He sits atop of everything with sovereignty. Look, this is my conclusion. I struggle transparently with being consistent with a prayer life. I struggle with being consistent with a study and devotion. Family, between me and Karen, me personally. I have, I have you know, spar- uh, sputs and starts and all those kind of things. I go good. Sometimes I look like the 13th disciple. Other times I look like, you know, Bill's above. You know, all that kind of stuff. And I suspect I'm not the only one, Pete. But as I was preparing this, and there's a lot of stuff that contributes to that. But as I was preparing this, the one thing that the Lord convicted me of and he showed me very clearly is he said, look, Charles, when is your prayer life and your study devotion life strongest? When I'm going through. When things ain't like I want them to be. So when, when I'm riding high, uh, maybe, I, you know, I bless my food. Does that count? When, when things are going well, Kenny, I can't, I can't seem to pick back up my Bible and get into the Word. But man, when, when some trouble comes my way, I'm wearing holes in my pants. I'm beseeching. I'm, I'm fasting. I'm praying. I got the sackcloth. I'm getting it in with the Lord because I need something. And what the Lord showed me is he says, look, Even, Charles, your prayer and your study and your devotion is still about you. Even though you're praying to me, it's about you. Even though you're studying about me, it's about you. And so what he helped me see is he says, look, prayer shouldn't be just me trying to find some rescue from a situation I happen to be in. Study and devotion shouldn't be me trying to find some formulaic recipe to apply to some brokenness in my life because I've got a problem going on and I need a quick word from the Lord that I can spread over it like some magic spells. But Colossians 15 and 20 lets me know that I pray or I should be praying or I should be studying because I want to be connected to the one who stands over all of creation. To the one who was in the beginning, who created everything by him, through him, and for him. The one who is the first of the reborn, of the resurrected. I study, right, because I want to know how that individual thinks. I want to see him interact because if I see him, he said it, I've seen the Father. So instead of, right, trying to find some deeper spiritual meaning and some crystals and some horoscopes and some yoga and some things like that, what he says is, is get to know me. And don't think of that time as, a, as, as being about how you can get your needs met because it's not about you, Charles. It's about Jesus. So even this morning as I prayed, I was thinking, well, Lord, I need to be able to do this, and I don't want to mess up. But then it interrupted, and I said, you know what? Jesus, it's about you. Hey, I want folks to see you. 
I don't care if I'm foaming at the mouth, spitting everywhere, if my throat gets choked up, if it goes long, I don't care. I want people to see you because you're preeminent. You existed before everything. You sit above all creation. Everything that is and was and will be came by you, through you, and is for you. And that includes me. So this morning, hey, all I'm saying is that if your focus is off, Pete, get it back on Jesus. If you're disgruntled and unhappy with what he's doing in your life, I'm going to say it. Get over it. Because he is the one that all of this is about. And I guarantee you, listen, the bigger he becomes in your life, the smaller the things that make you upset will get. Jesus. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Woo! Uh. Yeah. Look. I'm not minimizing the burdens, the conditions, the situations that we face. I'm not minimizing those things. But hear what I say. That's affecting everybody. So, so, so there must be something else in this life than the absence of problems. Than, than riding high sometimes and being low other times. The Bible says that God causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine in the lives of the just and the unjust. So if I'm measuring my spiritual life and fulfillment by kind of the ebbs and flows of life, that's the wrong measurement. And that's why, that's why we get so angry at God because we think it's about how many wins I got in my column? How many things went the way I wanted them to go? How, how many, how many uh, situations and outcomes came the way I needed them to be? And when he doesn't deliver on those things, we begin searching for other things. I need to make this happen somehow. He's not moving fast enough. I want to be married. I want a job. I want a promotion. I want whatever that thing is. And now I got to grab at it. All because we're, we're using the wrong scorecard. And it has us all twisted up. All messed up inside. All angry at the one who created everything and then saved our souls. But because I didn't get a promotion, as if that. <laughs> I'm talking to myself. As if that is the defining feature of whether he's been good to us or not. I'm talking strong because the times we live in need a clear representation, an example, a testimony, a witness of this God that we serve. People have questions. They're trying to figure out what makes sense. They don't understand how everything is going to fit and work together. And we right there with them. I don't know. I don't know either. What's going to happen? We serve the one who sits over it all and says 
you are all discombobulated and worried, but everything is moving. I'm, I'm holding it all together. So if it looks like it's out of control, it's still in God's control. And when I stop trying to define everything that happens in this world in, in a context to me, if I can just get off of myself for a little bit and start to think, just maybe God has a plan. He's been doing it for a long time. Just maybe he's moving civilization and all of mankind to one pivotal point where the scriptures say every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. So instead of me being concerned about what I got and what I can get, maybe I should be more concerned with who I can tell Jesus, who I can tell about, uh, tell Jesus to, right? And how I can live and, 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 and be a reflection of this one who did not <laughs> withhold himself from reconciling all of creation back to himself. And so I give praise and glory and honor 